Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 through 10. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in his tent, we groan in our burden, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and we prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. This is the word of the Lord. It's good to see each of you here today. I wish you a happy new year, and I bring greetings from North Shore Baptist Church. Uh, I was accompanied this afternoon on my journey up here uh, by a young man that this church raised, uh, James On, and I must say that there is not, in my opinion, a finer young man in, uh, in all of America, and so we are... Uh, most blessed to have him at our church, and so we thank you for the contribution that you made to us by helping to bring him up in the Lord, and then I've also brought with me um, my wife, Anna, and my oldest daughter, Savannah, and it is my honor to be with you again, uh, as I had an opportunity to be with you back in May. It's a great delight to be with you, and I'm excited to hear the good news uh, that Pastor Rob Frayer will be uh, joining you sometime in the next month, and so we are uh, uh, delighted to hear that news as we have known him for many years, and I was given the honor of uh, speaking at his ordination uh, about five years ago, and I can tell you that uh, you've made a good decision as he is a, uh, uh, a very solid man of God and will give great care to this congregation Undertakers and funeral homes stay in business for a reason. It's because death never goes out of style. If 2016 is anything like any other year, we are going to, sometime during the course of the next 12 months, say goodbye to some people who are dear to us. Now, maybe I will even be one of these people. Maybe you will be one of these people. We don't know. God knows. But we do know that we each have an appointment with death. The scripture says it is appointed unto men once to die. Hebrews 9.27. God is the one that makes that appointment. The Apostle Paul, when he was speaking on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, spoke to the people there and he spoke of God and said that God determined man's allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. In other words, God is the one that is going to determine how long you're going to live and where you're going to live. Well, Paul, in writing the book of 2 Corinthians, is writing a letter to a church that really has given him a hard time. Uh, his credibility in this church has been destroyed 
by some false teachers, some false apostles who have come in, and they have said, really, this man Paul cannot be trusted. They accused him of being frail and weak and inarticulate, not skilled in rhetoric or in philosophy. They said that Paul really was not worth very much because he didn't take a paycheck, and they said that Paul certainly couldn't be trusted because his travel plans were always changing, and he was certainly not to be respected because he was always being arrested, and he was always being beaten, and he was being driven from one town to another. And so Paul has a lot of work to do in writing the book of 2 Corinthians in order to reestablish his credibility. And as he does, one of the ways that he does it is he, in the middle of the book, has a section where he explains the true nature of Christian ministry. What does it mean to be a Christian minister? What does a Christian minister look like? And he emphasizes the fact that Christian ministry carries with it suffering. Suffering is an integral part of Christian ministry. Uh, Back in chapter 4, Paul says in verse 8, we are afflicted in every way. In verse 11, he says, we are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. In chapter 4, verse 16, he talks about his outer self that is perishing or wasting away. And in light of that, Paul makes an observation at the end of chapter 4, which is very important for our discussion today. He says this in the last two verses of chapter 4. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, please keep in mind that this text of Scripture was not written with chapter numbers and verse numbers. That was not added until hundreds of years later. And so if you were just reading the book of 2 Corinthians as it was originally given as a letter with no numbers, you would read seamlessly from chapter 4 into chapter 5. And so I want you to keep in mind, as we look at the first 10 verses of chapter 5, the pain that Paul is feeling at the end of chapter 4, and the perspective that Paul has at the end of chapter 4, stating that it is important that he keep his focus, that he keep his priorities upon that which is unseen rather than on the here and now. Now, the text that we have before us today is a very debated section of Scripture. There are items within this passage which are very, very challenging to interpret. So what I would like to do, here's how I would like to approach the text today, I would like us to take the first five verses and I would like to work through them verse by verse, commenting phrase by phrase, and I want to do so sort of as our introduction today or as the foundation or the theological underpinnings of this whole doctrine of death and resurrection, and then as we move into verses 6 through 10, we will bring out the practical application which will be the main body of the message. And so let's just move through verses 1 through 5 one at a time. Paul starts off by saying, for we know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now why in the world would Paul use the metaphor of a tent? Well, maybe he did this because he himself was a tent maker. 
He's talking about our physical bodies in the here and now, that it is nothing more than a tent. But the analogy is really clear that what he is doing is he is comparing that which is temporal with that which is permanent. And so when he's dealing with a tent, and he himself made tents, though he knew a lot about tents, maybe this was in his mind, he understands the temporal nature of a tent. Perhaps Paul had in mind Abraham, and what Abraham did as he was called to go out from Ur of the Chaldees and where Abraham lived. As I studied this passage, I was very interested in the fact that Faith is defined in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 11, the faith chapter. Faith is defined in part as living in a tent. Listen to what it says about Abraham in Hebrews 11, verses 8 and 9. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. So the question has to be asked, when Abraham leaves and he comes into the land of promise, although he does not possess the land, why does he not build a house? Is it because he lacked the funds? Oh, no, not at all. Abraham was a rich man. Why did he not build a house? Well, he did so, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, to accentuate his faith. Because it wasn't his land, it was the promised land. It would not belong to his descendants for another 430 years. So as a demonstration of the temporary nature of his sojourning, he lives in a tent. This world was not his home. He was looking for a city who has foundations, whose builder and maker is God, Hebrews 11.10. Paul, perhaps also had in mind the children of Israel, not just Abraham, but maybe the children of Israel, who lived in tents for 40 years on their way to the promised land. This was so large in the mind of God that one of the festivals or feasts that the Jewish people were to celebrate annually was the festival of booths or the feast of tabernacles. That, of course, was pointing to Jesus Christ who tabernacled among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. But whatever may have motivated Paul, whether it was Abraham or the children of Israel or just the fact that he was a tent maker and he was drawing an analogy, the imagery and the contrast in 2 Corinthians 5.1 is very clear. And that is that our current body is a tent, that it is temporary. But what we have awaiting us in heaven is a glorified body, a building, as Paul says, or a house, temporary versus permanent, that this house is from God, it's eternal, it's in the heavens, and it is not made with hands. In other words, it is not like what we experience in the here and now. Now that all is very, very clear. What is unclear and what is somewhat of a question is why does Paul use the word if, I-F, if the tent is destroyed? I think, I want to take a guess, I think I understand why he said this. Paul is saying that there is a chance that the tent might not be destroyed. What would happen that would cause the tent not to be destroyed? Well, Paul is saying that there is a chance that I might live to see the second coming of Christ and the resurrection. And if that happens, I will not have to die. But if our earthly home, our tent is destroyed before Jesus comes again, 
Well, even so, we know that we have a house that is eternal, a permanent house in the heavens. Verse number two. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Now he has moved the metaphor here from housing to clothing. The groaning here is, is, is uh, not complaining. Uh, yes, it is tough, but there is more of a sigh, a more of a longing to leave this body and to be with the Lord. He would rather be in heaven. And the metaphor shifts from housing to clothing. Look what it says in verse 3. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. Now, I will grant you, as I'm reading from the ESV, that this is an unusual verse because it's not even really clear in the Greek whether or not it should read putting it on or putting it off, which, of course, are opposites. But regardless of the textual variant, the idea is very clear, and the idea is this. Paul is saying, if I die... I do not wish to be a disembodied spirit. Please keep in mind that Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, and Corinth was in Greece, and the Greeks had this whole dualistic mindset. Seneca wrote, and this might have been the mindset of the people at the time, Seneca wrote, I am higher, I'm a higher being than, and born for higher things than to be a slave of my body which I look upon as only a shackle put upon my freedom. In so detestable a habitation dwells the free soul. In other words, I am in prison here in this body and I can't wait to die because when I die, then my spirit is going to be free. And Paul says that's absolutely crazy. That, that's equivalent to being naked. We are not created ultimately to be ghosts or to be disembodied spirits. No, we are created to have a body eternally. Paul writes to the church at Philippi and in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, he says that our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Paul writes to the church at Rome in Romans 8, 23 and he says, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan, that is sigh, yearn, long. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In the largest discussion in the Scripture on the subject of resurrection, back a few pages from where you are right now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 40 through 42, Paul writes these words. I'm sorry, 42 through 44. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And so Paul makes it clear that he doesn't want to be, nor is he... Um, or we created for this whole idea of just floating around as a free spirit. No, we are going to have a glorified body. Now, what does that body look like, and how is that body different from the one we have now? I'm not sure, because Paul doesn't say. But the point is, he doesn't want to be a spirit without a body. He doesn't want to be unclothed or naked. 
Perhaps this is what the false teachers in Corinth were teaching, and that's maybe the reason why he is correcting it. As he moves into verse 4, the metaphor shifts again, and this time it moves from clothing into eating. Verse number 4 says, For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life swallowed up, consumed. Now this verse is saying that, that, that our groaning, our desire to leave the planet is not just so that we can be a free spirit, but we are groaning and we are burdened here in the hope that one day death and mortality will be eaten up or will be consumed by life. Listen to what Paul says once again back in 1 Corinthians 15. Verses 53 and 54, writing to the same congregation, Paul says, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, and that happens at the second coming or at the resurrection, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up. There's that eating metaphor there's that pac-man that's coming after and consuming you have life coming up and eating up death death is swallowed up in victory which is a quote from isaiah 25 verse 8 now i will admit to you and i'm presenting this hopefully humbly to you this afternoon i'm not presenting it in a dogmatic way i will admit to you that this is confusing to me in its details but i think you do get the general idea And that is that Paul ultimately is longing not just for a release from the tent, that is this body of death, but he is longing for the consuming victory of life in an eternal glorified body, which brings us to verse 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. How in the world can Paul open this paragraph by emphatically saying, we know? How can he speak on such subjects with such confidence? Well, because the Lord is at work through the Spirit in Paul, and Paul realizes that what is happening here is the work of God. Paul didn't come up with this on his own. He didn't work or do anything to achieve eternal uh, Life by good works. But God is the one who prepared Paul for these things. Now, how is it that God prepares us for eternity? How does he do this? Well, first of all, he does it mentally and emotionally. Because we are image bearers of God. We are human beings. We are not animals. All dogs don't go to heaven. In fact, no dogs go to heaven. In fact, dogs do not think about heaven. Jesus Christ came, took upon himself human flesh, and died for the sons and daughters of Adam. It is human beings that have a consciousness of eternity. It says in the book of Ecclesiastes, he has put eternity in our hearts. I had a gentleman come to me one time, and he asked me about his dog going to heaven. And I said, absolutely not. That is ridiculous. Jesus Christ came to die for human beings. 
He said, well, you don't know my dog. It's a pretty good dog. I said, it doesn't matter. Dogs are not going to be in the afterlife. But it's not just a matter of contemplating eternity and thinking about eternity. He has prepared us for eternity through the gospel. And what does that mean? It means that before time began, God, for reasons only known to him, himself, set his love upon a certain people and elected them to salvation. And then he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come from heaven to earth to take on human flesh, to live a life for these people that they could not live themselves. And then his son, Jesus Christ, died in place of these people, paying for all of their sins. And then he was raised for their justification. And then Jesus ascended into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. And now as we make our way through life, God has prepared us for eternity by bringing us to a place where we hear the gospel. Not just hearing it with our ears, our natural ears, but giving us ears of faith to hear the gospel where we are effectually called to himself by his Holy Spirit, where we are regenerated, we're brought to life, where we have ears to hear and eyes to see, where we have an interest in the things of God. And as we are brought into this place, here's how we are prepared for heaven. We are given the gift of faith by God, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. And we are granted repentance. You don't have a desire to repent on your own, but God grants you that gift of repentance and he gives you a love for Jesus Christ, a love that you would not have had he not given you that love. And then he sustains you to the very end and causes you to persevere. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So from eternity past to eternity future, it is God who has prepared you for this very thing. And how do we know that we can trust God? Because the scripture says... He has given us his spirit as a guarantee. There is this enormous down payment that we have, and it is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, with that in mind, my introduction is over. Okay? We will now begin the sermon. These are the theological underpinnings of, 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 of what Paul is saying. In light of that, how then are we to live in the here and now? Well, we have that in verses 6 through 10. What I would like to use is verse 7 as a springboard to take us the rest of the way. Uh, It's a very, very familiar phrase, but I think it's a phrase that is often pulled out of context. In verse 7, we read these words. For we walk by faith and not by sight. I would like to use this as a springboard to sort of overcoat or to explain the rest of the passage. Now, I realize that this is a parenthetical statement in the midst of this paragraph, but I think it really sets the tone for the rest of the verses. Let me tell you, first of all, what this does not mean. This verse is usually extracted from its context, and people will use it to say, we have to walk by faith and not by sight. And basically what they mean by that is, don't think, don't wonder, get rid of logic, get rid of reason, don't be confused by the facts, keep your eyes shut, keep your mouth shut, and just walk by faith and not by sight, you just got to believe. Some people have really abused the verse. 
doctor comes to you and he gives you the report that the growth that you feel in your body is malignant. Some people will say, well, you don't believe the lie that that doctor is telling you because we are walking by faith and not by sight. No, if your doctor tells you that you have a malignancy, you need to get it cut out. Your bank statement comes back and it tells you that you've only got 37 cents. You don't need to rebuke the demon of being poor. You need to believe the fact that you only have 37 cents. Walking by faith and not walking by sight doesn't mean that we dismiss the facts. No, if we take that phrase and we put it back into the context, what it is saying is, in the here and now, we are walking by faith in that we are not in heaven and we don't see Jesus and we are not going to see Jesus until we see Jesus. So we are walking by faith and not by sight. He is not here with us right now. In light of that, what are we to do? I have four points of application for you. The first one is that one who is walking by faith will be of good courage regardless of the circumstances. One who is walking by faith will be of good courage regardless of the circumstances. Now, if we go back to chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, we do not lose heart. And then in chapter 4, verse 16, again, Paul says, we do not lose heart. And then in chapter 5, verse 6, he says, we are of good courage. And then in chapter 5, verse 8, once again, he says, yes, we are of good courage. What does this mean? Well, you have to read it in its context. Now, granted, Paul has just come off telling the people these wonderful truths that they will one day have a glorified resurrection body and that they will forever be with the Lord. Amen, hallelujah. But Paul has also told these people that his outward self is perishing day by day and that he is afflicted and that he is perplexed and that he is constantly under the pain of being in this world. How can Paul then with all of these things happening, how in the world can he say, even though he is afflicted in every way, that he is of good courage? If you read the book of Acts, if you read the rest of 2 Corinthians, if you read the other epistles, you will realize that Paul was under much worse circumstances even than I am telling you right now. I'm just giving you a small sample of what he's going through. How in the world does Paul say that he is of good courage? It goes back to what he is looking at. Because remember, at the end of chapter 4, Paul says, we do not look at the things that are seen, but we look at the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporal, the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, I'll submit to you this afternoon, if what you are looking at, if what your concentration is, if, if, if your priorities are on the here and now, then the logical conclusion is to not be of good courage and to not take heart, but rather to be grumpy and to have a bad attitude and to be discouraged and to be depressed. Why? Because this world is designed to let you down. 
let's just say for the sake of argument that you get to live the dream. I mean, we talk to our children, don't we? And we tell our children and we influence our children. You need to study hard and, and, and you need to go to a good school. And you need to make good grades, and you need to make good grades so that you can get a good job, and you need to get a good job so that you can get lots of money, and you need, to, you need that money so that you can have a big house, and so that you can have a fast car, and so that you can have security. That is what you need, and none of those things in and of themselves are bad, but if that ultimately is that what you want for your children, I ask the question, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world yet lose his soul? So your son or your daughter learns to build a barn and then that barn isn't big enough so they tear that barn down to make a bigger barn. And they say to their soul, soul, take your ease, take your rest, you have everything that you need. Jesus says, you fool, do you not know this night your life is required of you? Live in the dream. But even if we're living in the dream, still doesn't mean we're going to have a good attitude. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, it says, He who loves money is not going to be satisfied with money. Now, there's nothing wrong with studying hard and getting a good job and making money and saving for the future. Those things are not bad in and of themselves. But when they are our priorities, when we are looking at the things that are seen... Not walking by faith, but walking by sight. Then it makes perfect logical sense that when those things let us down, we become disheartened, discouraged, grumpy, basically have a bad attitude. Ladies and gentlemen, if your concentration is on heaven, this lifetime, this life, which is a vapor, just yesterday, just yesterday, I brought my 18-year-old daughter, Savannah, home from the hospital as an infant. How did she turn into an 18-year-old woman? When did that happen? It is in the twinkling of an eye. Life is a vapor. It is flying by, and the older you get, the faster it goes. I look in the mirror, and I say, suddenly, I'm not half the man I used to be. Time is flying. And if all I have is the here and now, when the here and now doesn't work out, then it makes logical sense to have a bad attitude. And Paul says, we don't lose heart. We're not discouraged. I mean, five times from the Jews, I was beaten 39 times. I was shipwrecked a night and the day I spend in the deep. Everywhere I go, I'm, 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 I'm beaten or imprisoned, but it doesn't ultimately matter. I'm of good courage and I take heart. Why? Because I'm not looking at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. So one who is walking by faith, ultimately, takes courage. Are you married to someone who has a bad attitude? Maybe ask them the question, how heavenly-minded are you? There is absolutely no reason, ultimately, to be despondent or in despair if what we are focused on is heaven. doesn't make any sense. Here's point number two. That is that those who are walking by faith 
long to be with the Lord. Notice what it says in verse 8. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. First of all, theological point, this does great damage to the Jehovah's Witness doctrine of soul sleep and the Seventh-day Adventist doctrine of soul sleep that says that we are going to die and then we're going to go into a period of unconsciousness until the final resurrection. That doesn't fit into this verse. This verse says that when we are absent from the body, we are present with the Lord. Now, if you look at the whole passage, basically what Paul is saying is, my preference, point number one, is that I would like to have a glorified body and be with the Lord in the eternal house in the heavens, not made with hands. But my second choice is this. If I can't have that, I would like to depart from where I am right now and be with the Lord. Similar to what he said in Philippians chapter 1 when he said, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. It is better for me to be here. I'm sorry, it is better for me to be with the Lord than it is to be here. My third option, Paul says, is to stay here with you and to remain right now uh, groaning, sighing in this tent. Practical application It is unchristian, it is non-Christian, it is anti-Christian for Christians at the funeral of a Christian to be morose and to be morbid. Now, I'm not saying that it shouldn't be dignified, and I'm not saying that it shouldn't be somber, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't extend sympathy to the ones who have lost a loved one, but ultimately, the death of a Christian is a happy time. Precious in the Lord is the death of his saints, Psalm 116. And so you see, ladies and gentlemen, when the deceased have gone from this life to the next, and and, and they're going to fight as hard as they can to stay in this life for as long as they can, but when they pass from this life into the next, and they are in the presence of the Lord, If they were given a choice at that point, and they're not, if they were given a choice at that point to come back and be with you or to stay with the Lord, it doesn't matter how well things are going in this life, it doesn't matter how well the jets are doing, it doesn't matter how much they would have loved you, they would want to stay where they are. It is better, it is far better, as it says in Philippians, to be with the Lord. So I don't know if any of you are going to make it to my funeral, Although you're all welcome, please come to my funeral. I want it to be more of a party than I do a dirge. Now, I'm not saying I want it to be, you know, ding dong, the witch is dead. But what I am saying is I want there to be a delight that I am now at rest and at peace with the Lord. As a side note, ladies and gentlemen, we do need to dismiss this pagan notion that when our deceased are gone from us, that they are somehow like in a balcony looking down at us. So when the professional athlete hits the home run and he's rounding second base and he points to his freshly deceased father up in heaven and in the interview afterwards says, and I knew my dad was looking down on me. No, his father wasn't looking down on him. If his father was saved, then his father is with the Lord. He's beholding the glory of the great I am. He is not watching a baseball game. Nor does he have access to watch that baseball game. 
And if he did have access to watch that baseball game, he wouldn't want to watch that baseball game, for he would be beholding the glory of the Lamb. Now, if his father was saved, then his father is in heaven, and if his father was not saved, then his father is not in heaven. But the emphasis that Paul makes is not that we are going to a better place, although we are going to a better place. The emphasis is that we are going to a better person. It is to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. Is heaven heaven without Jesus? Do you want to go to heaven if Jesus is not there? I grew up in western Pennsylvania. Uh, My mother lives in the house where I grew up. In fact, she and my father bought the house in 1946. She's been living in that house by herself for the last 23 years since my father passed away and went to be with the Lord. I have a sister who lives in Pennsylvania and Florida. I have a sister who lives in Massachusetts and a brother who lives in South Carolina and I live in Queens. My 92-year-old mother, when she dies, if she dies before I do, will change the perspective of that house altogether. That house is still home, and the reason it's still home is because my mother is still there. What makes home home is not the house. What makes home home is the people that fill the house. What makes heaven heaven is not the place. What makes heaven heaven is the fact that Jesus is there, and what Paul longs for is to be with Jesus. So, brothers and sisters, if we are to live by faith and not by sight, we have a desire to be with him. Not that we are suicidal and not that we stop eating, but that we have a longing. We know that we are not at home here. Which brings me to my third point, and that is that those who walk by faith and not by sight are very ambitious to please the Lord. Verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. We all have goals. We all have ambitions. That's not wrong. Uh, That, that in fact, is is a very good thing. But what is our main ambition? It is to please the Lord. And if we are to walk by faith and not by sight... We will please the Lord and not be people pleasers. You see, the tendency that we have is to be people pleasers, to be men pleasers. And why is that so? Because a man can pat you on the back. A man can stand in front of other men and can say of you that you have done a good job. A man can chastise you. A man can ostracize you. A man can make you feel comfortable. A man, I'm speaking of men here generically, men and women, a man can punish you. A man can help you. And so what do we do? Our tendency is to be people pleasers. If anybody would want to be a people pleaser, it would be Paul because of everything that had been said about him. And Paul says, listen, it is not our aim to be people pleasers, but we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to please the Lord. We make it our goal to please him. He's playing to an audience of one. It's what God thinks. Now, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying 
that we should be mean or cruel to other people or that we should be cold or that we should have this attitude which says, I don't care what you think, I only want to please God. People who act like that and who speak like that really don't want to please God. Because if they wanted to please God, then they would be loving toward others, for God has said to us that we should love one another. But there's a world of difference between a people pleaser and a God pleaser, and this has very practical implications for how we live our lives at the beginning of a new year. Perhaps some of you have made New Year's resolutions. Let me take one that would be probably very practical to the men in the room. How in the world does a man defeat pornography? The answer is by faith, by believing that God sees everything that you do and it matters to him what you do and you are desirous to please him regardless of whether or not your wife or your children find out about it or not. And so you have to ask the question, do you really care what he thinks? Is it your goal to please him? Our thoughts, our words, our motives, our deeds. Do you care what God thinks? Now, please understand that I understand, and, and the scripture is clear, that all of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags, and, and that if our deeds are not mediated through the high priestly work of Jesus Christ, they are not acceptable. But I also know that when they are mediated through Christ, we can be pleasing to the Lord. I'm simply asking, does it matter to you whether or not you are pleasing to the Lord? And the reason this comes under the heading of walking by faith and not by sight is because Jesus is never going to show up physically and pat you on the back and shake your hand and introduce you to other people and say, well, well done, good and faithful servant. That is going to happen in the future. That is why we walk by faith and not by sight. Which brings me to the last point, and that is that those who walk by faith and not by sight live with an anticipation of the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 10 for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due what is due for what he has done in the body whether good or evil let me be very clear this is a confusing verse to me and i'm not really sure where it fits in eschatologically this bema seat this judgment seat of Christ. I'm not sure where it fits into the time frame of our future. But just because I don't know the eschatology, that isn't really what matters. It's the certainty of it. And the we all must in that passage is referring to believers. I don't believe it's speaking to our eternal destiny because it is really clear in the passage that the judgment will be based upon what we do, whether it is good or evil, I think it is based upon what we have done with respect to rewards. Now, I have some ideas concerning where this might land eschatologically, but I'm not even confident enough to share those ideas with you. And I want to say this to you. If you have some sort of well-defined, finely-tuned eschatology, 
And if it turns out in the end to be different than how you have imagined it, I want you to rest assured that in the day when you do stand before the judgment seat of Christ, you are not going to be complaining and say, hey, wait a minute. I thought that this was supposed to happen after the rapture. Or I thought that this was supposed to happen after I die. Listen, you're not going to miss that appointment because you don't know when it is supposed to occur. You will be brought there when it is time to be brought there and we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And so in light of that, how do we now live? If we live with a view toward the now and that this, all, this is all that there is, then we will make decisions based upon, I'm not going to have to give an answer for this. If, however, we live by faith in light of the fact that regardless of what it looks like eschatologically, we are going to be standing before Christ to be judged, then that is going to impact the way that we live right now. I realize that Christ is our righteousness, and I believe that he is our advocate, but I also know that this text says that he is our judge. There's going to be a rendering based upon what we have done. Are you living toward that day as if it is going to be a reality? May 2016 be a year in which we live by faith. Where we are of good courage, why are we of good courage? It's not because of the circumstances, because there's going to be some crummy circumstances in this year. It's going to happen the first time you get in traffic. It's going to happen the first time you fail a test. It's going to happen the first time you have to go to the doctor and get something done that you didn't think you were going to have to get done. It's, it's going to happen. There are going to be, happy new year, there's going to be some crummy things that are going to happen this year. But if we are living in light of eternity... By faith, we are of good courage. Happy New Year. We have to be living in light of the fact that we long to be with him. Loving Jesus and longing for Jesus. Happy New Year. We have to make it our goal and our aim and our ambition to please him. Happy New Year. Judgment Day is coming. Live as though Judgment Day were coming. Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity I've had today to address these people. I pray, dear Lord, even with the simplicity of the message today, that the truth of your word would work on our hearts. May we live this year by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.